My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Hello, my fellow Sunrise Church family. I'm speaking to you via video this Sunday because I'm out of town and I really, really wanted to share this message with you. You see, this message is so important to me that I actually refuse to let anybody else preach it. I was that much of a selfish jerk. Well, last week's message about the gospel going to the Samaritans and this week's message about the gospel going to the Gentiles are at the heart of all I've wanted to teach and preach at Sunrise in this series. In fact, two years ago, when I began to study the book of Acts for this message series, it was these two messages that hit me directly in the heart, and I have longed to share them with you. That's why I'm here on video. And so, if by chance you missed last Sunday's message, please do me this favor, get up, leave the auditorium, go to the foyer, and listen to last week's message on the podcast, and then come back to next service. No, I'm just teasing, really, but please, please, please take the time to either download the transcript, listen to the podcast, or take the time to watch the video this coming week. Well, why? Am I so insistent? Well, the reality is these two messages are like bookends that hold this entire series together, and they're so vital to understanding not just what happened in the book of Acts, but what happens and needs to happen at Sunrise Church. Now, if you're newer at Sunrise, this concept I'm going to talk about here in a minute might be new to you. If you've been around for a while, you've heard some of it. This triangle here we call Newbegin's Triangle, based on Leslie Newbegin, who was a British theologian, missiologist, missionary, and author who spent most of his career serving as a missionary in India. His writing, although very challenging at times, is known for his conversations about the connection between the gospel, the church, and the culture. Now, here's his basic thesis. The gospel is acultural, meaning the gospel does not come wrapped in a culture, but it moves in a pure sense into a culture and the church is born. People are saved. It contextualizes itself to that culture and the gospel becomes good news to that culture. But it also critiques the culture and yet at the same time it can redeem the culture. Now this is true no matter where the gospel of Jesus goes. There are always windows of opportunity and windows of opposition that exist in every culture when it comes to the gospel message. Now what's tricky is navigating between the two. Because out of this redeemed culture comes the church, God's redeemed people. And yet God sends that church back into its culture. And the challenge is, what is the church going to do in that moment? Now, one of the things the church is prone to do is to go directly back into the culture without ever considering the church's own culture it's created and what harm we might do to the pure message of the gospel if we take our culture with the gospel. Now, for example, 
in America today, we wed the gospel to politics, to buildings, to music, to dress, all kinds of things. It's gospel. What does that mean? I think sometimes the church feels too confident in its self-made culture. And either doesn't want to go back to the world's culture to see it redeemed, or it wants to leave the gospel entirely and go back on its own. The result is that Christians end up mimicking and copying the culture all the time in music and books and self-help stuff. And it's just crazy, the stuff we have in the name of Jesus. We just wrap Jesus around it, and now it's Christian. But what does that mean? I think it's difficult for us to see and to separate the gospel and culture. In fact, we often wed the gospel with culture so much that we can't even discern the difference. Let me share an example from my years training pastors in East Africa. Well, when I go to East Africa to train pastors, it is expected that I would wear a suit and tie to church. Why? Well, that's not how the missionaries found them when they came to Africa. But if you're a Christian, you're going to wear a suit and tie, right? Well, why? Well, see, the missionaries not only shared Jesus' words, they shared how Jesus dressed, which was a three-piece suit and tie, obviously. Well, in the middle you know, season of my life when I was doing all this, I was confused because I didn't even have a coat and tie. But if I was going to go to an East African church and not wear a suit and tie, I wasn't spiritual. I couldn't preach because the missionaries wedded the dress of the West with the gospel of Jesus. And now they can't tell the difference. Well, let me give you another example. When I was young and before I became a follower of Jesus, I was part of a church that was heavily into the political world of the new Christian right called the moral majority back in the 70s. Now, the traditional Baptist principle of separating religion and politics, keeping them separate, church and state are separate, was dissolved in the 1970s when the moral majority moved politics back into the conservative church and mobilized conservative Americans to become politically active on issues they thought were important. See, the moral majority believed that what America really needed were more laws that reflected a conservative opinion. And so our religious right church believed that if we could change America's laws, we could change America's heart. But my friends, only Jesus can change a heart. You see, the reality is there's never been a savior in the White House. There's never been a savior on Capitol Hill. You're not going to find a Messiah in Washington. Now, let me be clear. I, I believe we should vote. After all, we're citizens of the world. We need to participate but first and foremost, we're citizens of heaven. Let's never forget that. We owe our allegiance to Christ and not a political party. So Christians in America have wedded religion and politics. And that means that right now, many churches across America preach a gospel of the religious right, and they don't even know it. They think it's Jesus, but it's not. See, we have taken our culture, wrapped it around the gospel, and we can no longer see the difference. We just think that's the way it is. Now, you see how easy it is to not only preach a gospel that looks like Jesus' gospel, but comes wrapped up in another culture, a Western culture, a religious culture, a political culture? You know, when we weave the gospel into any culture, we end up crippling our ability to share the pure gospel without any bias. Now, this is not a new problem. This was the problem of the early church. They were a group of people called Judaizers. They were Jewish believers in Jesus who sought to wed the gospel with their Jewish culture. They were the political religious right, as it were. These Jewish believers taught that they could only go to Jesus through Moses. You can't go straight to Jesus because we had to go to Moses and all the laws. You got to go to Moses and all the laws, and then you can come to Jesus. In other words, you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Eh, wrong answer, folks. Sorry. Well, what do we do to fix this? You see, my friends, the church needs to continually embrace its own need for the gospel before it ever has a message for the world. 
Then, and only then, will we really be willing to leave our culture for the sake of the gospel message. What does this mean for you and for me today? Well, for me, it means this, that I can never forget that I need the gospel. Every day I need the gospel. Before I ever preach the gospel to anyone else, I preach it to myself. We have to remind ourselves of the gospel message and why we still desperately are in need of a Savior. We need to wake up every morning and remind ourselves there's nothing we can do to earn greater status with God. It's already been done by Jesus. I mean, on the cross, after all, the final and full payment was made. Jesus was sacrificed for our sins. It's done. It is finished. We can't add anything to that, especially our culture. See, now we need to go live out of that, that joy and overflow in such a way that people see God's grace and mercy, his loving kindness in us and through us. And then we can take a gospel to a world that's attractive. Now, why am I bringing all this up today? Well, again, because last Sunday and this Sunday, we're seeing a monumental shift in the book of Acts and in the early church. The early church is finally going to reach out of its Jewish culture. They, we saw last week they reached out to the Samaritans, this week the Gentiles, and it's going to build from there. After all, that's what Jesus had in mind with the Great Commission, that it would move out of a Jewish culture, across the nation, out into the world. Same f- true for you and for me today. Last week, we saw how the persecution of the church forced the believers out of their comfort zone, forced them into Samaria to reach the Samaritans. Today, the gospel moves out even further. Now, if you have a Bible, please open it with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to see verses 26 to 40. And let me begin by reading the text. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And he met the treasure of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. That's Acts 8, 26 to 28. So who's the man in the story? Well, there's two guys. One is Philip, and we know him. We saw him last week, one of the original servants or deacons chosen in Acts 6. He's the one that moved out to Samaria to preach the gospel of Jesus. But who's the other guy? Well, all we're told is he's an Ethiopian eunuch. We don't even have his name. We know where he's from. He's the Ethiopian. That means he's a black African. That was different for Philip. Ethiopia at the time meant the lower regions of Egypt and as far down as central Sudan, Khartoum. Today, we would call that area the Nubian Desert. So he's a black African. Very important to know that in the story. Secondly, we know this. He was a eunuch. That means at some point in his life, he had been castrated. Now, that was a fairly common practice in the ancient times if you were going to work with the royal family. Because if you were not a part of the royal family member, uh, you might damage the line if you got sexually involved. And so the price to pay was castration. This would ensure the royal lineage was secure. Now, so right away, we see a couple things about this man, about he and Philip and how they're different. First, Philip was a Jewish man. This guy's a black man. Racially different, right? Racially different. That was important to Jewish people. Secondly, Philip worked among the lower class, the poor. He waited on tables serving the poor. This man lived and worked in the upper class. I mean, they were economically different. And a third distinction, Philip wasn't castrated. He was a pure Jew, and this man was. So they were sexually different. More on that later. Now, back in Philip's day, the Jewish men would get up every day and pray this prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. I do not encourage you to pray that prayer. That's horrible. But Jewish men were taught that you could not fellowship 
with people who were different than you. There was this arrogance, this smug superiority that those people would actually defile you. They were dogs. They were under you. And to a religious Jew, this man was about as defiling as a person could get. Now, it's not how God saw things, of course. After all, it was God that put these two people together. Notice it said it was an angel, the Lord, that told Philip to head down to the road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And we see that God was already working on this Ethiopian's heart because he was actually reading the Bible. He was reading from the Isaiah scroll. So let's jump back into the story. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I, unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the chariot and sit with him. That's Acts 8, 29 to 31. Now, first of all, get the picture. An angel put Philip on the road. Secondly, the Holy Spirit tells him to go over to the man, to get in a chariot, to walk by, walk along with him. It's clearly a God thing. And God was going to do something extraordinary. But it was Philip, my friends, that had to listen and obey the Lord. Now, he could have been like me sometimes, I'm sure like you, push back on God a little bit and go, that's kind of weird. I'm not sure about that. You know, uh, I, I'm not comfortable or God, no, 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 Lord, no, no, no. I'd never hang out with an unclean person like that. We wouldn't say it that way, but he could have. He could have said, you know how hard I've kept myself pure. I mean, I can't be seen with him. Now, you might be thinking, what a foolish thing. He'd never say anything like that. Well, that's not true because that's exactly what the apostle Peter is going to say in two chapters. He's going to say, no, Lord, when God calls him to go to a Gentile. No, Lord. Those, those two words should never be put together in a sentence, right? Thankfully, Philip just did exactly what the Lord told him to do. But are we so quick to listen and obey? Do we hesitate when things seem strange, a little odd, or something seems wrong? And if God nudges us, do we go through with it? After all, in his context, a Jewish man does not hang out with an Ethiopian eunuch. Who do you not hang out with? See, every single aspect of this story happened because of God's intervention. God really wants us to break down racial barriers between people. And as I mentioned last week, God wants all people to be saved, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. But what is more important than simply reaching another culture is when you realize that your culture is not more important than any other culture. There's nothing special about your culture. It's just one of the many cultures that God is reaching. That's right. Christianity does not belong to one culture more than another. See, first it was the Jews that were coming to Jesus. Then it were the Samaritans who were coming to Jesus. Now we're going to see the Gentiles come to Jesus. See, these, these people, these groups, they all hated each other. Over and over and over again, the book of Acts shows us that there is no one culture to which Christianity belongs more than any other. You see, my friends, the gospel is the most inclusive religious belief system in the world. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is so inclusive. He welcomes everybody. Jesus is for every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Christianity, in fact, is spread all across the world and exists in every country and culture. It's an amazing thing to study. But another day, let's jump back into the story. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So, beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. 
Acts 8, 32 to 35. Now, just a minute ago, I said that Christianity is the religion that is the most inclusive of cultural differences, right? But that doesn't mean it isn't also exclusive. Now, I know it sounds confusing, but you know, you're not going to be surprised to hear that Jesus made some exclusive truth claims, right? Just in this text alone, we read the eunuch asked Phillips, what does this Bible text mean? He was reading from the Isaiah scroll and he couldn't understand it. I mean, Philip, if he were a modern person today, could have said, well, what does this mean to you? What do you think? What do you think God is saying to you? You have to figure it out for yourself. No one can help you decide this. I can't tell you what it means. This is your own path, your own course. (laughs) Of course not. That's ridiculous. Of course, that's how we think today. Who am I to tell you, right? What does Philip do? He simply jumps back into the text and shows him how it all points to Jesus. Philip begins to tell the good news about Jesus and leads this man to faith in Christ. So not only is Christianity following Jesus the most inclusive of all religions, it's also the most exclusive too. Philip didn't sit there in the chair and say, well, I can't tell you Jesus is better. I can't tell you Jesus is superior than any other. There are a lot of religious leaders. You just have to find your own. Just head up on the mountain. You'll eventually reach God yourself. Come on. It's ridiculous. Philip pointed to Jesus. Why? Because the entire Bible points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus, friends. From beginning to end, the entire storyline of the Bible is about how Jesus is the solution to every struggle you and I have. From Genesis to Revelation, everything points to how Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God that dies in our place, that takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is a very exclusive message, my friends. It's an offensive message, to be honest. But after all, Jesus was the one who said, He was the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through him. He was the offensive one. Oh, and then there were the apostles who confirmed it when they said, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I guess that was offensive, and I'm going to be offensive too. There are not many paths to God. Now, there are many paths to religions, but that doesn't mean they're paths to God. Those are paths to dead ends except for the path that leads to Jesus. It's exclusive. Well, let me finish the story from the book of Acts. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. Acts 8, 36 to 40. Now, why was this Ethiopian baptized? Well, because he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He put in tr- his faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. And baptism, it really means simply that your life is over and a new life has begun. You've died to your old life, your new life has begun. Baptism means I used to not believe in Jesus and now I do. And now that he believes, the Ethiopian is baptized. It's the same thing today. Nearly 2,000 years later, we're still baptizing people saying, I died to my old life, I've come alive to my new life. So let's ask this question as we draw to a close. Why was this black African reading the Isaiah scroll so intently? Now think about it from the story. Where was he from? Where had he been? It's a beautiful thing. 
We already know that he was an Ethiopian from eunuch, okay? He's the head of the treasury of the queen, and that means he was very powerful, very successful, he was very wealthy. And he had traveled over a thousand miles to get to Jerusalem to offer his sacrifice. Man, that's an that's a important thing. Why would he do such a thing? Well, I think it's true that people go to great lengths to fill the emptiness and void in their heart. Theologians believe that there must have been an incredible emptiness in this man's soul, something his own religion couldn't fill, something his own power couldn't fill, something his own success could not satisfy. And so he headed to Jerusalem, the epicenter of the spiritual world. But you know that when he got to the temple, he would have been shut out? Why? Not because he was an Ethiopian. There was a special area called the Court of the Gentiles where men like him and women could go to worship God. But why would he have been shut out? Because he was a eunuch. You think about this. The temple and the worship of God were regulated by laws of Moses, and they clearly said that he could not get in. One of the rules was that no one deformed physically, no eunuch, no one castrated, could ever go in and worship God. Can you imagine the pain and disappointment of this man as he faced that rejection? His very identity was rejected by people. I believe that there is a clue to why he was reading from the Isaiah scroll. He was reading in the section of Isaiah called the Servant Songs. And one of those chapters, Isaiah 56, would have given this man hope. It's a song about the blessings to all nations, all foreigners who seek the Lord. It's beautiful. Let me read it to you. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be part of his people. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no fruit. For this is what the Lord says. I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. Isaiah 56, 3 to 5. Friends, can, can you just imagine his reaction when he read these words? Don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dried up tree with no children, no future. And that God would give him a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could ever give him. Can you feel the emotions of what he might have felt? Can you imagine how much that should have caused him joy? I mean, he had no descendants. He had no way to pass on his name. He had no sons and daughters. Now, the only way to do that is to have sons and daughters, right? And that was so important in the culture. This man gave up his future. I mean, what could God mean that a man like him could have a name that would last forever? A name that would never disappear? This, this must have brought him incredible joy. I mean, I, I would imagine it would have brought him to his knees in celebration. And then to discover that in this section of Isaiah is the servant of God who will make it all possible. How? Through his own suffering. Friends, do you see why a eunuch would be reading this section of scripture? Does it make sense why a eunuch would find joy in realizing that he had something in common with the suffering servant of God? And when you read the actual text that is in the book of Acts there, it's Isaiah 53, you see that God's suffering servant was cut off and had no descendants of his own. You know how that would have resonated with this eunuch? This means that Jesus became just like a eunuch with no children for this man. Can you imagine why he would be confused about this and why God put Philip exactly at the right place, exactly at the right time to share the message of knowing Jesus with him? 
I, I think the, the question that was asked is so beautiful. Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? I mean, who's he talking about? I need to know. What did Philip do? He pointed him to Jesus, the one who was born to die, the one who became a lamb to be slain for our sins, the one truly who became a eunuch for the eunuchs, the one who is excluded so we would be included. Friends, this truth is so important today. In a very spiritual way, we're we're all like eunuchs. Uh, We have all been excluded from the presence of God because of our sins. And because of our sins, nobody loves God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and strength. Nobody here loves their neighbor as themselves. Nobody can go into the presence of God. Every one of us are kept out because of our sinfulness, our defilement, because of who we are. But the beautiful part of the gospel is that Jesus was forsaken for us. Jesus was excluded for us. Jesus was made unclean for us. We could never do enough to gain favor with God. So God came down to die for us so that he could extend us the favor we did not deserve. You want to know what the gospel is? The good news, the gospel is this, that everyone can come to God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to completely leave behind your culture because the fact is Jesus wants to come into your culture and redeem it from the brokenness and dysfunction and sin. You come from a nation. You come from a place that's beautiful. But Jesus can transform everything. On the cross, Jesus died and was excluded so that you could live and be included. The way to God is not by keeping a set of laws. It's, it's, that's not working. It's through receiving the grace of God. And when you become a follower of Jesus, your identity is changed from the inside out. You have a new name. You have a new heritage. You have a new hope. You have a new father who loves you. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we close our service time together, this message, I just want to thank you that you created all of us, all men and women everywhere, on every continent, on every nation, on every color of skin, every language, every culture. You made the world and everything in it. You're the one who gives life and breath to everything. And you tell us you satisfy our every need. Your purpose in doing all of this was so that every culture, every nation would seek after you and find their way to you. God, you are not far from any of us. You are right here, right now, moving among us. Holy Spirit, we ask you right now to reach out and tear down the cultural and racial racial barriers that have long separated us. We pray that we might be instruments for peace and healing and justice in a world because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, we look to what you have done for us. And now that you have changed us, we want you to work in our lives so that we can see others change, we can see cultures change, we can see entire communities changed. We have no power to do this apart from what you can do in and through us. And so empower us to live out your good news of Jesus to a watching world. In your holy name we pray. Amen.